This is a Federal News Network podcast. The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Mark Amtower of Amtower and Company, which is entirely responsible for its content. This is Amtower Off Center on Federal News Network. Every week, author, speaker, consultant Mark Amtower gives you his take on what's going on in the world of federal marketing. Now, your host, Mark Amtower. Welcome to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm Mark Amtower. I'm here today with a, uh, a frequent guest, but he hadn't been on for a while. Uh, Larry Allen of Allen Federal. Larry, welcome back to the show, man. Mark, thanks. It's great to be here. Always a pleasure to have you. Um, so we, we have a, a lot of stuff going on, but again, briefly uh, tell people what you do and how to get in touch with you. Mark, you can get a hold of me at L-A-L-L-E-N at allenfederal.com. That's my email handle. And Allen Federal exists to help companies in the federal market improve their business while staying compliant with their contract requirements. Well, that's succinct. You can also find Larry on LinkedIn, and I suggest you do so. So let's talk about the elephant in the room. What's the impact of the coronavirus on our little universe here, government contracting? I mean, we have the relief bills that are are just massive, but necessary. So give me your thoughts here. Mark, I think uh, it's important for government contractors to note that the relief bills, the ones that have been enacted so far, the one that's currently being discussed in Congress, really don't do a lot directly for the contracting community unless you're specifically in the segment that provides healthcare or healthcare related research uh, services and solutions. Uh, There's not a lot of relief for government contractors. There's not a lot of extra money going directly to government agencies except for those involved in healthcare, things of that nature. So it's not like your government customer is generally getting a lot more money. What is being uh, passed that does impact government contractors, if you're a small business, obviously there's a lot of small business relief with the Payroll Protection Act, uh, and that's going to just uh, be continued on uh, in the next iteration of legislation that Congress is considering. Uh, as well as changes that are coming to your government customers' environment. We're going to talk a little bit more about telework later, but that's certainly one change. And uh, Other changes are Congress is currently contemplating hazard duty pay for some feds, but, Mark, not for contractors <laughs> uh, who may work side-by-side side with those federal people. It's going to change the environment. Uh, in which you do business. You probably have already experienced that. I think that that's only going to continue. It's not going to change back to the way it was perhaps ever. So contractors are going to have to adjust to how they do business, how they sell, how they market, how they conduct their outreach, and also be aware of what's going on that impacts their customers because their customers are, are people too. They have families. They have their own concerns, and that is something that this legislation uh, will impact. But in terms of net new money to spend by the end of the fiscal year, um, not so much. 
Okay. So you don't think the relief bills are going to, or or what are your thoughts on the relief bills, the size of them impacting the overall federal budget? Well, I think that is the bigger point, Mark. If you're a government contractor, not only are you not going to see a lot of new money now, except for the exclusions that we've talked about, you might see less money in the out years because of the money that's being obligated now. So if you're looking at FY21, FY22, FY23, it's likely that you're going to see reduced spending by federal agencies. Why? Because the bills are going to come due for the obligations we're making now. Uh, As you pointed out, those obligations are necessary, keep things going, keep people uh, from real danger in their lives. But uh, the price tag is high, and at some point, the bill will come due. Uh, DOD, for one agency, is already talking about this rather open and publicly uh, and with their contractors saying, we expect to have a flat budget and even a declining budget in a year or two because money that ordinarily would go to pay for things is going to have to go to pay for service on the debt that we're incurring, interest on the new debt obligations. So on one hand, Mark, the government is open for business and business is being conducted. On the other, there's not a lot of new net money uh, unless you're in a specified area. And two and three years from now, there may be less money for government agencies to spend with you because we're making the obligations in other areas now. Yeah, I mean, you know, Overall, I mean, we've we've never been through anything like this, so it's challenging on many levels. And, uh, you know, it was encouraging to see Democrats and Republicans working together uh, on the first relief bills. We'll see, you know, if that continues, but just kind of is what it is, right? It is what it is. And, of course, this next uh, bill, the one that's currently being discussed, is not really bipartisan in nature. It comes with a, a big price tag of $3 trillion in the House. Uh, hint, hint, before this bill gets passed, it's not going to be $3 trillion. It'll be some lower amount, but this is a starting point. And it'll probably be a week or two mark before we actually see what this next bill uh, looks like before uh, it passes. Point. So um, one of the things that you and I have both seen over the years, when there is a downturn in the economy, there is an upswing in the number of companies looking to do business with the government. What's your crystal ball telling you this time? Mark, my crystal ball is telling me we're going to see a repeat of that cycle. And you're right. It is cyclical. Every time there's a recession in the commercial market, There are new companies that come into the federal market because the federal government is the customer that's buying. Similarly, there are companies that, while the commercial market is good and robust, they may play only at the corners of the federal market with one foot in and one foot out. And in a downtime, suddenly those companies significantly increase their federal presence uh, as if they were here all along. Uh, So I think that uh, we will definitely see 
an influx of new companies. On the one hand, the Department of Defense uh, says that it wants new and innovative companies to come in and has some programs set up for that. and has other transaction authority and things of that nature. On the other, we've got new requirements that are coming in, particularly for DOD contractors. Uh, cyber maturity uh, protection that we're going to talk about, as well as uh, Section 889, which in plain English means you can't uh, have in your enterprise any banned telecommunications or IT equipment like Huawei or ZTE products, to name two. Uh, so the market's not going to necessarily have the lowest barrier to entry, uh, Mark. This isn't going to be like it was the last time we had a recession because there are going to be more rules and newer oversight. The other thing that I would mention about the coronavirus and Congress is that, uh, look, contractors, while you're not getting tons of extra money, the bad actors that are out there that are not delivering on the masks they said they were going to deliver on or they're overcharging for medical supplies, everybody's going to get caught up in that mark in terms of more congressional oversight, perhaps a new round of rules and regulations that will make it more difficult for companies to do business in this market generally. Uh, and that can particularly be a challenge for new market entries. Yeah. I mean, there's always challenges, but these will be exacerbated. We're going to take a break. You're listening to Amtower off center on the federal news network. I'm here with Larry Allen and we shall return right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. Uh, Mark Amtower, I'm here with Larry Allen of Allen Federal. You can find him at allenfederal.com. You can find Larry on LinkedIn. You can find him uh, playing with his kids after we're done with this interview. So just thought I'd throw that in, Larry. As long as dad has the car, they're happy. Well, there you go. We touched on telework in the last segment. Telework technically has been with us since the early 90s when there were four telework centers set up around D.C. It was a program managed by GSA. I believe it was through the Cooperative Admin Support Program back then, which unfortunately is no longer with us. But um, it was designed at that time so people wouldn't have to drive all the way in. I believe there were two... Uh, centers in Northern Virginia and two in Maryland. I don't even know if I ever knew how many seats each had, but they were designed so everybody didn't have to drive into D.C. all the time. Telework went away largely for a variety of reasons, none of which made sense, but obviously it's kind of back. So let's talk a little bit about the background of and and do a little crystal ball gazing on going forward here. Well, Mark, you're you're absolutely right. Telework is the order of the day now for federal agencies as well as for most government contractors. People who can telework are teleworking, and uh, I think that this is a phenomenon that is going to continue on even uh, when the coronavirus impact dies down. This is changing the way that people work and interact. Uh, we have a whole host of technologies that allow people to work virtually and still stay in contact. We have federal 
employees are going to see this increasingly as a benefit, a benefit that's very desirable benefit. Uh, we've already seen some federal agencies like GSA, for example, purposely shrink the size of its office footprint, expecting its people to only be in the office one or two days a week. And I think that that's just going to accelerate across uh, government. And it poses some interesting challenges for government contractors. Probably the most obvious one is if you are a commercial real estate company, this could be an issue for you uh, as federal agencies realize that they can perhaps get along with fewer buildings, less office space, less leased space, and have people work uh, from their homes. No longer do they need to report to a telework center solely because that's where the technology is. People have the technology at their homes. Uh, but it's also going to change the way that any company reaches out, sells and markets to federal agencies, how you, whether or not you're going to get that in-person meeting, the in-person meetings could become more difficult to come by. And that's important because look, as much as there is a process in government contracting, Mark, we also know that at least half of government business is relationship driven. And while you can have Zoom calls, WebExes, Skype, Microsoft, Teams, you name it, they got it, uh, all of which are good for keeping people in contact. They don't really replace the in-person interaction. So that's going to be something that government contractors are going to have to figure out moving forward as they develop their business strategies. Uh, similarly, you know, what are we going to do with conferences and breakfasts and things Obviously, those aren't happening now, or if they are, they're all virtual. Are we going to go back to that? Uh, so that could change the way contractors operate, too. But in terms of telework, Mark, it's here. It's going to be something that lives on. The government is going to have to update its telework policies, some of which have not been touched uh, for about 17 or 18 years. <laughs> Some of the research that I've done, uh, you know, they contemplate that telework would be temporary and really be a minority of a worker's time. Well, now it's going to be broad spread and it could end up being the majority of many workers' time. What does that mean for things like security? What does that mean for things like uh, consumable office supplies? Are you going to allow your workers to print things out and then reimburse them for the cost of ink and paper? Or are you going to insist that they wait to print things out until they get to a federal office? Uh, well, you, you mentioned Section 889 uh, in the previous segment. So if you have a home office set up, who's to say that Huawei and others are not part of the configuration that you have? Well, this is a real issue, and it's an issue whether you're a federal employee, it's an issue whether you're a contractor employee. Uh, because right now, contractors cannot sell, the government cannot buy, ban telecommunications and IT equipment. There's been a long-standing prohibition on equipment like Huawei, uh, as well as uh, other types of Chinese-made uh, technology. But what's coming this summer, Mark, is the prohibition on contractors having 
any of that band technology anywhere in their enterprise. So if you've got an employee that is using a Huawei cell phone to conduct government work, is that a violation of Section 889? Well, on the face of it, it is. Uh, are you going to tell your employees they've got to get rid of their Huawei phones? Uh, are you going to reimburse them for the cost of you know, getting the nice compliant phone that's made somewhere else? Um, you know, what's, what does that look like? But it, it could have very real risks and very real impact. You know, we saw in the early days of teleworking a spike generally in compromised devices accessing government networks. And, you know, the information security community had to deal with that and deal with it pretty quickly to make sure they were managing the risk. Um, but that risk is just going to continue and, in fact, grow if you've got people who are uh, using equipment that they wouldn't be allowed to use if they were in government office. Yeah, and that, that brings up another interesting point. When um, the whole stay-at-home thing uh, hit the fan or whatever you want to call it, there was a tremendous spike at soup. Now, I'm curious to know, and I haven't had a chance to ask Joanne this yet, was that for laptops? Because I know that a lot of laptops all of a sudden were purchased and shipped to home addresses, and we have that standard configuration thing that's available through CIO, CS, through uh, GSA 70, and through uh, Soup. I think ITES has a slightly different one. Well, you're absolutely right. And the anecdotal evidence suggests, yes, that laptop computers have been flying out the door of the companies and their resellers that hold those contracts. Tens of thousands, uh, whether it's for uh, the IRS or the VA or GSA, uh, I've seen all of those agencies, Mark, make huge laptop buys uh, to the point where the delivery dates uh, are getting out there to the right a little bit. <laughs> the, the, the demand is such that uh, it's not always easy for OEMs to uh, turn to and, and produce them. But yeah, that's uh, that's not a huge surprise as you see people teleworking, you see people uh, needing uh, technology. You know, not everybody had a home computer if they had one. Maybe they had just one that the entire family used, and you can't have that when you're doing federal work. So uh, this has been a little a mini boom for uh, laptop companies and their resellers. Yeah, um, and that that's going to be picked up in our next segment. So we'll go ahead and take a break right now. You're listening to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'll be back with Larry Allen right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm Mark Amtower. I'm here with Larry Allen, and we are discussing a variety of topics. We've covered uh, Corona's impact on uh, on our market, the re-emergence of telework, and the shape it'll probably take going forward. And we're going to migrate to IDIQs, the state of IDIQs, and Larry. Um, what is it? Uh, the state of IDIQs, Mark, is in flux. 
Uh, we have the, some of the standard IDIQ contracts that people like. You referenced NASA Soup earlier. Uh, it's in place and operating well. The GSA schedules is uh, in a time of transition, but that's largely internal. It shouldn't be obvious to buyers. So the schedules program is up and doing well. Then you have contracts like Oasis and CIS P3 that are, are all doing their thing. Uh, and then you have some contracts that um, either aren't here yet or are here, but they're not here because they've got a problem with them. Uh, at the top of that list is GSA's Alliant 2 small business contract. Seems many months now, Mark, where GSA made uh, initial awards under Alliant 2 small business and uh, there were subsequent protests. My understanding is that at least one, at least one, probably more, are still in litigation, and that means GSA can't move forward with any Alliant to small business action. Uh, the regular Alliant to contract, the unrestricted, is up and running and doing business, uh, but it may be a little while before GSA can do anything with Alliant to small business, and Unfortunately, because there is litigation, they can't really say a lot publicly about what their timeline is or what's going on, because uh, that's all restricted. So, uh, a little bit frustrating, very frustrating if you're a small business that was hoping to have Alliant to be uh, part of your business portfolio. Over next door to Alliant 2 at GSA is the 8A STARS program, which uh, reportedly has reached its ceiling. You know, uh, not what uh, people may not understand, Mark, is that except for the multiple award schedules program, each government-wide acquisition contract, GWAC, and almost all uh, IDIQ single award uh, contracts and indefinite delivery and definite quantity contracts for specific agencies all have contract ceilings. Once you hit that ceiling, that's the end of your authorization to use that contract. So uh, Federal Computer Week and others are reporting that 8A STARS has hit its ceiling, hit it early, and that that contract is no longer taking new task orders. Uh, the big thing is, Mark, that the next iteration of Alliant 2 isn't expected until 2021. Or Star, stars, stars 2. Yeah. Right, Stars 2. The next iteration of STARS-2 is expected until 2021, uh, which means that if you're an 8A company that has been doing good business on STARS, you're going to have to find another way to do business with the government. If you're a government buyer that has enjoyed doing business on that contract, you're going to have to find another vehicle or another way to get to that 8A contractor you want to do business with. This could be really significant at federal year end when IDIQ contracts are at their most popular. Right. And uh, it means that they're going to uh, have to find other ways to, to get what they need. A lot of that probably, Mark, will go to the schedules program. Some of it could go to others. Uh, so, you know, in terms of com contracts that are up and running, those are two that have uh, some significant issues. Uh, one that does—it's not necessarily a significant issue. In fact, it's hopeful. Is uh, NIH is working uh, hard 
on its CLSP4 contract. They want to get a, an RFP out by the end of this calendar year. But don't don't fret. They're going to give you till middle third week of March to get your offer in so it doesn't ruin everybody's holiday. That contract could have some new offerings on it. Uh, there's a lot of interest in industry. That's kind of an understatement. Uh, CRSP3 has been a popular vehicle. It's particularly been a popular vehicle with Department of Defense buyers, Mark. Uh, and that's an important market. Uh, we know that NIH has taken particular pains to make sure that it maintains good relationships with DOD as a whole. Uh, so uh, a lot of anticipation around uh, CIOSP4, as well as another GSA contract that's coming down the road, which is a little different for GSA than what they usually do. Talking here now about the Astro program. This is not the program for George Jetson or Spacely Sprockets, for those of a certain age who might remember that, Mark. <laughs> But the GSA Astro program is for unmanned air, aerial vehicles, drones. The, it is being sponsored by the Department of Defense and being run by GSA's FedSim organization. This is an organization that is usually known for managing assisted acquisition projects on a large scale. Their baseline project is $100 million and above, and frequently today it's above. FedSim has an excellent uh, reputation uh, in government, in industry for doing things well, uh, but they don't necessarily have a reputation for putting an entire IDIQ contract vehicle in place uh, and then uh, being the one that manages the buys from it. So uh, this will be kind of interesting, but uh, Astro 2 has significant interest in industry, a lot of interest from not just traditional defense contractors, but from companies that maybe straddle that defense market between providing commercial solutions and DOD-only solutions, uh, as well as smaller businesses that are looking for ways to team up either with a larger business or with each other to get into this market. Okay. Um, let's go back to STARS for a second. Is there any possibility or is there any regulation prohibiting OMB from adding a billion dollars to the vehicle until they can successfully get out an RFP for, for uh, STARS uh, 3? Um, OMB could technically do that, Mark. GSA would have to request that they uh, increase the threshold. I'm not aware that they have done that, but they certainly could do it. And then OMB, because OMB granted the GWAC status to begin with for this contract, uh, OMB would be the agency that would have to grant an increase in any ceiling uh, for it. Well, that, that would seem to be the logical shortcut, would it not? Certainly. And I think STARS, if I remember correctly, had been given a best-in-class designation. Correct. Which would make it more likely than not that OMB might look favorably on this. Uh, if I were GSA, 8A community, I would be asking OMB to make that decision pretty quickly. Uh, so we'll have to watch that space. 
Yeah, one other thing before we uh, we leave this segment, SBA had a recent rule that you have an opinion on, and it's a particularly onerous one for smalls. Uh, here's a big surprise, and keep in mind that not all surprises are positive, Mark, and this one is not. The FAR Council put out a new FAR rule, new rule uh, updating small business size standards specifically for basic ordering agreements, BOAs, and GSA scheduled-based blanket purchase agreements, or BPAs. And the rules reflect changes to small business size status, uh, changes that uh, the SBA had, had started initiating way back now in 2013. And uh, it's a potential issue for GSA scheduled small businesses because the, the new part of the FAR says to be eligible for an award under a blanket purchasing agreement or a basic order agreement, you have to certify that you're a small business at the time of the task order award. Uh, the specific FAR language says at the time of award of the order. So whereas in other parts of government contracting, your small business size status can be determined on a five-year basis. And I guess here you could say, look, on our five-year basis, we're small, but other people would say, no, today you're not small. So you have to be able to say yes at the time if this is a small business set aside under a blanket purchase agreement your company has to affirmatively state that it is still a small business and thus eligible for a task order award under the small business bpa it the changes mark are contained in far uh, 19 .301. I won't bore your listeners with all of the soup to nuts to get them to the specific place, but generally that's the heading for 19.301. If you read down just a paragraph or two, you will see that language. This goes counter to lots of other small business guidance that's been put out, but my recommendation for companies is even though this is not good news, it's news that you better follow. Don't tell a customer that you're small if you're not. It's <laughs> certification to the government, whether it's on size, status, pricing, or anything else, that's a bad thing to do. And ultimately, Mark, could cost your company many times more to defend it or in fines than the piece of business that you're pursuing. It's just not worth it to make a false certification to get a task order when you could turn around and have a whistleblower complaint or an audit that could take all of that money, lots and lots more, and more importantly, your reputation with it. Yeah, there you go. Um, Larry, we're going to take a break. Uh, you're listening to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. Larry and I will wrap up after this on another topic. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm with Larry Allen today. We're actually not together. We're doing this over a tool called Ring Central. So we're not in the same room, but we seem to have the same energy level. Thank you for that, Larry. Absolutely. It's fun. Um, so our final topic today is CMMC. And I'm curious to know whether this is a problem or a solution because 
like other programs, it has spawned a number of companies that are helping other companies get into compliance for CMMC. And Frank Kendall, former Undersecretary of Acquisition for DOD, wrote an article in Forbes. And he, he's questioning not the, uh, the need for the program, but he's presenting the issue, is this a problem or a solution? Um, so we have a problem, but is CMMC the solution? So take a deep dive here. Well, Mark, I think that cybersecurity model maturity certification, CMMC, is something that is here. Uh, if you're a defense contractor, you are expected to go through the process of being certified that you have good basic cyber hygiene on any one of a number of the five levels promulgated in the CMMC hierarchy. Uh, Mr. Kendall's article, I thought, raised some interesting points because the way you get certified is not through DOD. DOD is farming this out to third parties who will certify that your systems meet the required standards. Who's certifying those companies, the companies doing the certifying? No one knows. <laughs> Nobody really knows what standards there should be. Yet. Hold, hold it, hold it, hold it. We, we should start a company then. <laughs> <laughs> well, in fact, lots of people are. There are uh, people already out on the internet, Mark, and there have been for probably about at least a month now who are offering to shepherd people through the certification process who themselves, um, nobody knows who they are. So you have to be very wary of fraudsters who would uh, claim to be authorized. I'm not aware that anybody is yet authorized to run people through a CMMC audit. There may be one or two, uh, but Kendall's uh, assertion is that DOD is saying, look, you cannot do business with us unless another third party that is not a government entity tells us that you're okay to do business with. And his claim is that that's really an inherently governmental function. The government gets to decide who's an appropriate company that is eligible for doing government contracting. I think he's got a good point. I ran this by one of my colleagues, Mark, somebody who's a real, real expert in CMMC, and he kind of seconded some of what Kendall was saying. He likened CMMC to building an airplane while it is already in flight. Uh, it's intended to ensure that the government, in this case DOD, is doing business only with companies that practice good cyber hygiene, that have good cyber security protocols. It's not enough to say that uh, we're going to allow these companies to self-certify. Somebody needs to say, yes, uh, we've actually looked at this company and they meet the applicable standards for doing this piece of work. Kendall's basic argument is it should be the Department of Defense or another government agency. Uh, he's got a good point. But the point that he makes is an interesting one, Mark, because it's not necessarily limited to CMMC. There are at least two other programs I can think of off the top of my head that rely on outside third parties to determine whether or not a government contractor or would-be government contractor meets 
applicable standards. The most recent one is FedRAMP for cloud-based services. Government's only supposed to do business with companies that have been FedRAMP certified. How do you get FedRAMP certified? Well, you're accredited by a third-party certification company. So it's kind of the same process envisioned under CMMC. Uh, the other would be Section 508 Disability Access Standards. Uh, you're supposed to only sell IT uh, to the government that meets the Disability Access Standards subject to Section 508 of the Disabilities Act. Uh, and again, third parties are the ones that certify whether or not your company and its IT actually meets those standards. So if this becomes an issue, if Kendall's reasoning takes hold, very quickly we have a number of questions in government acquisition about who decides or who should decide whether or not a company meets uh, applicable standards for doing business with the government, whether it's the Department of Defense or anybody else. Uh, the CMMC issue uh, is well-intentioned. It comes on the heels of a National Institute for Standards and Technology uh, requirement that all contractors have supposed to uh, be meeting for the last several years now, but many of them aren't, even though some have said they are. So this was Congress's answer uh, it's obviously not the perfect answer to the perceived problem. I have several problems with this to begin with. So it's a, a law, which means that a number of companies jump in immediately to try to get that 3PAO status, which some companies seem to have for FedRAMP, uh, the third-party or, uh, authorization organization, so some companies are legitimately trying to facilitate this process. They're spending time, money, and you know other resources developing programs to help DOD contractors meet CMMC requirements. And if they pull the plug on this or alter it in some way, then once again, we've seen something that's publicly mandated change radically and a number of companies have already spent time and money trying to leap into the breach as it were right not only leap into the breach but there are companies defense contractors who are actively seeking to get themselves certified this is supposed to be a requirement it's already showing up cmmc certification is already showing up in draft rfps and rfqs yet we're not sure that anybody is actually certified yet. We've seen it in the draft RFP for the NIH, CIOSP4 contract that we spoke about earlier. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is coming down the, the road. I don't know that Kendall's uh, article is going to change that. He suggests that the Department of Defense either delay implementation or scrap it entirely. Well, the, the due date is ridiculous. And the due date is ridiculous, uh, and there's also another piece of confusion that surrounds this, Mark. If you're a commercial off-the-shelf provider, some people, some people in DOD, have said that you're exempt from having to meet CMMC requirement. Other people, I think more correctly, have said, well, wait a minute. It kind of depends on what type of information the government gives you, because... 
CMMC is set up to safeguard CUI, which is not classified but still sensitive government information. And you can be a commercial off-the-shelf service provider and your client can provide you with one or more pieces of paper or documents that have CUI status. Well, then you would, by law, have to be CMMC certified to a certain level. Uh, depending on whatever the level of the contract under which you're doing business is. So it's not entirely clear that COTS companies are off the hook here. In fact, I would say it really speaks to the piece of business that you're doing, which means if you want to do that business, you'd better be certified. Really? So, um, you know, one, one more quagmire, my friend. It is a quagmire, and you're right. The timetable is unbelievably unrealistic. Uh, we're supposed to start having companies be certified now so that an initial batch of 10 or 12 DOD contracts uh, will have this implemented during this fiscal year. Yeah, forget it. That's not realistic. Uh, and then everybody, all 350,000 current DOD contractors, not to mention possible new market entries, would have to be certified by 2026. That's just not nearly enough time to get everybody certified. It sets up an artificial deadline that just begs for fraud to happen, not just uh, companies certifying themselves when they're saying they're certified when they're not, but semi-legitimate, illegitimate certifying bodies that take money from companies and then uh, purport to show that they meet a standard when maybe they do or maybe they don't. All I can say is that you know, this is going to be good for the business of government contract lawyers and government contract consultants. There you go. Larry, thanks so much for, uh, for joining me today. Appreciate it. Mark, thank you very much. And we'll get together sooner rather than later uh, next time. So, um, again, thanks to Larry Allen, Allen Federal, A-L-L-E-N Federal.com. And you can find Larry on LinkedIn. I advise companies on all aspects of marketing to the government, but I specialize in LinkedIn and social selling, uh, developing content, marketing programs, differentiation, and building a subject matter expert platform. If you need help in these arenas, please drop me a line at markamtower at gmail.com. And thank you for listening to Amtower Off Center. You've been listening to Amtower Off Center on Federal News Network. Tune in Mondays at noon or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.